0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. Today, I'm talking to Yoram Hazoni, president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem, chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation, and author of The Virtue of Nationalism. Earlier this week, he published an essay in Quillette called The Triumph of Marxism, which has been getting a lot of attention. Yoram, welcome to the Quillette podcast. Thank you, Toby. Do you want to briefly summarize your essay for us and tell us what sort of reaction you've had to it so far?
2: Well, the, the reason I wrote the essay was to to try to put some perspective on on the events of this summer of uh, summer 2020. I think many millions of people share a feeling that, uh, particularly in the United States, this summer something this summer something something extraordinary and uh, very big has happened, and uh, I wanted to try to uh, to uh, create some clarity, which re- requires uh, making some propositions about the political theory of what's going on, and then to project where where it's all going. There's a lot in the article, but the, the main argument is that uh, the movement that is being called uh, progressive or woke or Black Lives Matter or... Uh, critical race theory, Uh, it goes by many other names, that that movement is in fact an updated version of Marxism. I know that many people throw that around as though it's an accusation, but uh, my goal was not to make an accusation. My goal was in fact to try to uh, demonstrate what is so powerful and persuasive in the Marxist framework, which has been uh, adopted to current circumstances in in America, the UK, and other countries, and uh, then to uh, understanding what's so impressive and important about what what truth there is standing behind uh, this Marxist effort to overturn the hegemony of liberal ideas in Western countries. Having looked at what's the, the truth behind it, I then turn around and argue that uh, that in fact. Uh, giving in to this new Marxism would be uh, catastrophic, and I I write about the tactics that are being used in order to uh, since since we you know we don't we definitely don't see at least not yet a, a open civil war you know the kind the kind of revolution where where uh, uh, people are shooting one another in 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 the streets at least not in most places so I I, I wanted to try to understand what what in fact is the strategy. Of this updated Marxism, in terms of, uh, how they clearly want to seize power, and how are they doing it? That's the purpose of the essay, uh, which which I called the the challenge of Marxism.
1: Before we get into the substance of the argument, just briefly describe the reaction you've had to it so far.
2: It's only been out for two days, and y- you know, as a, as a writer of long essays, I, I'm I'm used to the reality that it takes people time to talk about and think about an essay U- usually uh, you know it takes a couple of months until you start feeling some kind of uh, deep effect in in this case uh, social media is kind of uh, lit up with the essay and so far you know the- these first 48 hours have been um, surprisingly positive uh, meaning you know usually when you you advance kind of like a political theory framework, and let it flow down to out into the public sphere. The first thing that happens is, is uh, people kind of line up to tell you how stupid it is. And uh, I I have no doubt that many people will say that eventually. But at the at at the moment, it's been an overwhelmingly positive response. People are very grateful to be given a framework for understanding what's happening. Uh, you know, even even if people may disagree with uh, this or that. particular
1: point. So one common objection to your piece and pieces like it, raising the alarm about the inroads neo-Marxists have made into American institutions, is that you're guilty of hyperbole. Um, To take Princeton as an example, yes, more than 300 faculty signed an open letter calling on the university to do more to tackle racial injustice and using a lot of the language of critical race theory. And they've changed the name of the Woodrow Wilson Public Policy School to something else. But 300 is still less than a third of Princeton's faculty. And when Joshua Katz, a classics professor, wrote a piece in Quillette taking issue with the open letter, the president of Princeton defended his right to free speech, albeit after some... Foot dragging, um, aren't you essentially doing a Joe McCarthy and seeing reds under the bed where there aren't any? Okay, well,
2: there's a couple of different issues. Let's 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 start with uh, with the numerical one. I think I think that there's kind of a um, a misconception that that uh, people who live in f- in democratic societies you know, which is definitely my preferred way to live. But there are certain misconceptions that come with living in democratic societies. One of them is that the way that decisions are made is on the basis of numerical majorities. And so there's kind of this um, assumption that if only a third of the faculty at Princeton are endorsing what, you know, for the moment, let let's say, I think I think is an obviously Marxist position, but whatever name you would like to call it, if only one-third of the faculty are endorsing it, then there's no majority, and so it's alarmist to speak about their having uh, conquered the institution. Now, I, I think that this is factually incorrect. Societies are not governed by majorities. Societies are governed by uh, groups that attain uh, the power to determine... Determine the course of events and policies uh, on the basis of their their own values and and preferences. And so, if you, I mean, just to pick the most the most glaring example, uh, th- there never was more than you know five or four or five percent of the population in Nazi Germany that were actually members of the Nazi Party. And the same thing is true in communist countries. It's it's always a very small percentage uh, that. Uh, th- that actively and explicitly identifies with any particular thing but that that doesn't answer the question of what who's calling the shots and who's in charge and so i think that up until this summer it may have been exaggerated and alarmist i mean i certainly have friends who have been warning about the uh, uh about the marxist or or progressive or far left takeover of universities and uh, and and major media and Hollywood and and, and tech big tech uh, for years but what I was trying to to do in the, in this article was to show that something actually did happen this summer now, the example that I used those those two examples the, the uh, were were the New York Times and and uh, and Princeton let, let, let me actually just talk about the New York Times for a moment let, let's think about uh, the power structure in, internally to the New York Times. Nobody has, um, you know, you, people can you know, smear the New York Times and say, "Oh, it was always a, you know, it was always communist," but you know, but th- that isn't true. The truth is that the New York Times has been maybe the lead liberal institution in the United States and and, and maybe on earth certainly among major media and but but it, it has had kind of like a jewel in the crown position as far back as I can remember throughout my entire life now, as a liberal institution um, th- that that newspaper had uh, policies which allowed the participation within limits of uh, people on the labor left people on the conservative right uh, I myself, um, have written for the New York Times, uh, the old New York Times, quite a few times, I think, I think maybe 10 or 12 times I appeared in the New York Times. And uh, that was part of a, a political theory that dominated the New York Times. And the New York Times was part of a, a structure that dominated uh, America and most democratic societies. That liberal power structure is what, what you need to keep your eyes on. Liberalism, when I say liberalism was hegemonic, what I mean is not that there was a numerical majority uh, of, of liberals. What I mean is that the key positions and the ability to make decisions within the New York Times and within Princeton University and within hundreds of other leading institutions throughout the West, those positions were controlled by liberals who had independence. It was, it was their idea of, of what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed, which was making decisions. Now, it's true that the New York Times has been moving sharply left for a few years, and people point to the 1619 Project, and and rightly so. But up until this summer, it was very clear to anyone familiar with what was taking place internally, that there was still a struggle on the part of uh, liberals who wanted to maintain a liberal newspaper. One of the leaders of that group was was uh, James Bennett, the opinions editor. And, and people, you know, ever since he was appointed a few years ago, conservatives have known that name and have known that he and a number of other uh, others in key positions in the paper were attempting to hold the doors open for conservatism, for conservative views to be uh, legitimate. So that there was a liberal position inside the paper which says, look, this is a democratic society. Even though this is a liberal paper, we want to do our part to make sure that that we continue to be a multi-party uh, democracy. That that we do bring conservative opinions into account in our in our newspaper because we do consider them to be legitimate, even when we don't agree with them. And uh, what happened this summer is that an opinion piece by Senator Tom Cotton, uh, which Uh, I I think a few years ago, the particular piece that was published about the legal right of the federal government to employ force uh, under uh, conditions of uh, violence or insurrection, a a few years ago that piece would have been considered almost uh, banal in its statement of of obvious facts. But today, uh, or this summer, when Senator Tom Cotton ran his piece in the Times, uh, there was a an internal backlash within the paper which was powerful enough in order to force Bennett's resignation, uh, drive out of the Opinions Department uh, a few other prominent liberals, and establish a a hegemony of a new way of thinking within the New York Times. What's that way of thinking? That way of thinking is uh, is a Marxist view which says there's only one legitimate political party, and that's the political party of the oppressed. There's no longer a, 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 a democratic liberal ethos, which says conservatives can be legitimate, liberals can be legitimate, labor can be legitimate. As long as each one treats the others with respect, uh, allows them to speak, allows them to run in elections, allows them to rule when they win elections, uh, then, that, th- then, then that's legitimate. That was the old liberal ethos. What happened when, when uh, Jim Bennett w- was forced to resign from the times, what happened was that uh, a new hegemony was in fact established, one that, that, that was gaining strength there for a long time, and it finally won. And its rule is there's only one legi- legitimate point of view, and that's the progressive or the anti-fascist or anti-racist or, or woke point of view, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. I, I call it Marxist. And that Marxist point of view, it determines, first, that conservatives are not legitimate. And so if, if, if you take a, a conservative position, then they will take you out, they will cancel you in the, in the, the current language. And especially that uh, now that conservatives are no longer legitimate, now they can move on to canceling people who are in fact just liberals. I mean, J- James Bennett was, was, was not a conservative. James Bennett was a liberal editor uh, defending traditional liberal, uh, li- liberal views. But to do that is now no longer acceptable uh, at the New York Times. And we can make the same argument about Princeton. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling
3: service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough, and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists and you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 US states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code QUILLETTE. Just go to BetterHelp.com slash QUILLETTE. And now, back to our podcast.
1: I think that's a very um, reasonable and persuasive response. Um, But isn't there another difficulty with your overall hypothesis, which is that, okay, let's suppose that many of these powerful liberal institutions, now perhaps formerly liberal institutions, let's suppose they have been taken over by whatever you want to call them, but for the sake of argument, let's call them Marxists. You're assuming that that gives the groups that have taken over these institutions an extraordinary amount of institutional clout. That they're now in a, in, a, in a very powerful position, which makes them very dangerous, the future of liberal democracy in America and elsewhere. But aren't you assuming that the, that the power of these institutions, their cultural clout, the fact that they're calling the shots, as you say, aren't you assuming that um, they're going to remain that influential, even having parted company? with the liberals who have run them up until now, if they cease to be liberal institutions, if they abandon those values and embrace this fairly narrow, sectarian, hard-left ideology, aren't they going to quickly lose that influence? You're sort of assuming that that's just somehow independent of the values they embrace, the people who run them, that effectively it's like the left taking over the army, or the national broadcaster in a kind of South American banana republic. But actually, it's not quite like that, is it? I mean, even an institution as powerful, um, as culturally significant as the New York Times, surely is going to lose a lot of its cultural capital. Um, if it ceases to be a liberal, open minded, even handed publication, if people like Bennett leave, won't that be the death knell of the New York Times? It may, for a year or two, it may survive on its reputations, but but readers are going to leave in droves, aren't they, and find other publications that that are more congruent with their values.
2: Well, look, I I certainly hope you're right. I mean, I, I'm not. Uh, although, uh, for sure, this the, the essay that I wrote definitely is uh, is describing uh, a. A breaking point. I think we did reach a breaking point this summer in which people of a Marxist persuasion decided, determined that the moment had come in order to try to seize not just the New York Times and Princeton University, but uh, hun- hundreds of other institutions. So that I, I did want people to understand that there, uh, there, I do think that there has been a, uh, a shift to a very Open, naked power struggle. Now, that that power struggle has, in fact, been going on for uh, the last couple of generations uh, in the universities and in other places. But uh, we've never seen uh, the Marxist faction reach the moment where they could dictate to one of the most prestigious universities in the world. That its most famous president, Woodrow Wilson, who is an uh, uh, an icon of liberal historiography, that his name would be struck from all of the buildings and all of the institutions within Princeton uh, that had it. Now that that is uh, a a naked power grab, as I wrote in the piece. It's it's an attempt to hoist hoist a Marxist flag on top of Princeton and and say, look, we've triumphed if we can get rid of. Woodrow Wilson, then we can get rid of you too. Uh, but you're right that this is a struggle. I don't think the struggle is over. I don't think the battle is over. Uh, and in fact, the the essay itself is a uh, is a plea for uh, liberals to uh, to attempt to construct an alliance with conservatives, which is in fact nothing more than uh, an attempt to resurrect the the old democratic system in which. Liberals granted legitimacy to conservatives and conservatives granted legitimacy to liberals and the reason that I'm proposing this is because I I still have a, a hope that it can be uh, turned around so you're right I I, I definitely hope that institutions which uh, pull in the Marxist direction are going to quickly lose the support of the, the of the broad public that will stop buying them, stop reading them, stop following them stop stop voting for people who are too influenced by this kind of point of view. That's my hope. But I, I, I don't want to say that I'm optimistic, because uh, uh, we're talking about um, a, an ideology uh, which has been rigorously trained in the universities and other institutions now for decades. And that ideology, unlike liberalism, that ideology is very, very much, very sharply aware of power relations within groups, and uh, they have shown that w- once they have a foothold in an institution, they are—they know how to play the power politics game much better than liberals do because th- that, that's their principal goal and they're very serious and dedicated to it. And they're able to uh, eventually seize the, the dominance of institutions that, that we all thought were liberal. So the important thing to understand right now is that if it can happen in the New York Times— than it can happen in any liberal institution. And that includes uh, uh, the Democratic Party in the United States or Labour in in, in in the UK, but it also includes uh, the Republican Party. And the Conservatives don't think that we're immune simply because we, we disagree. Disagreeing doesn't make you immune. You have to be very good at power politics, and we're just not that good at it, at least not yet.
1: You say in your essay that um, one of the reasons liberals are losing these battles for the control of institutions like the New York Times isn't just because they're more naive, less well-versed in the kind of real politic of kind of institutional warfare. Um, It's also because they lack the theoretical resources to repel this assault, which is why if they're going to fight back, you say they need to enlist the help of conservatives. But aren't you being unduly pessimistic about Liberal ideology. I mean, it's managed to withstand hard left assaults on its institutions before, in the 1960s, for instance, when Students for a Democratic Society mounted an assault. And, uh, you know, why are liberals doomed to fail this time round in the face of what appears to be a more diffuse, less uh, politically organized attack, at least on a larger scale? There's no equivalent of students for a democratic society kind of calling the shots with a kind of an imposing a discipline and a party line from the top down. It's much more kind of bottom up and kind of crowdsourced revolutionary movement than that, which feels like it's less of a threat than what we saw in the nineteen sixties.
2: Look, I, I with regard to who's organizing, I, I would like to be very careful about this. I you know, I, I don't have I don't have inside information. Um I I'm really not sure. Uh, what the extent is of formal underground organization? I simply don't know the answer to that. But I I don't want to I don't want to be naive either. Uh, there there are aspects of what's going that appear to be uh, coordinated, and it may be as you're saying that it's crowdsourced. But let's just set aside the question of uh, who who's who's funding and who's calling the shots and who's making the strategy, because I I really don't know the answer to that question. But with regard to is liberalism, doomed. I look. I don't think that liberalism is doomed. But you're right that I have a. Um, I, I I myself am a conservative. I'm not. I'm I'm not a liberal. And uh, what's relevant for this discussion is that uh, as a conservative, I, I believe that without uh, strong traditions, it's not possible to maintain any set of ideas or any kind of uh, political structure in human society. Over very long periods of time, I touch upon this some in the essay, and there's more of it in my other writings. But um, I, I I see liberalism not as a set of self self-evident opinions that if you just you know if you just tell everybody to think for themselves they'll, they'll all come to liberalism. Rather, I see uh, the achievements of liberal society and liberal freedoms. As being the result of uh, centuries of uh, of education and inculcation, uh, which includes um, all, all sorts of things that that liberals don't like so much these days, like um, uh, societal norms that are uh, that are rather rigid and the handing down of traditions in in schools and the attachment of these traditions to uh, uh, to uh, uh, powerful means of propagation like uh, uh, Christianity and Judaism, and nationalism, and uh, the, the 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 belief in the nation state and the flag. I mean, there's much to be said about this, but my understanding is that uh, what are generally called liberal ideas were able to uh, flourish and grow strong. So long as they were allied with a conservatism in America and the u k conservatism meaning uh, that that most people were Christians, most people went to church, most people were uh, s- sending their kids to school to be educated in a particular way when when they were being sent to school and there was a great change in the 1960s now but i 'm not talking about you know the the uh, the student revolutionaries in the 1960s the great change. Uh, came from their parents' generation uh, in the 1960s we see uh, through the Civil rights act through uh, uh, amendment of the the uh, uh, I- uh, immigration laws in the United States the Supreme Court decisions about separation of church and state there there was a uh, what I would say uh, is actually kind of a constitutional revolution in the 1960s in America that then radiated radiated out towards uh, just about the entire democratic world, and that constitutional revolution was not—it was not the Flower Children. It was—it was you know not the Rolling Stones and the Beatles that did it. It was the leading class, you know, or elites, as as you can say, the the Protestant elites uh, who had dominated uh, America since its founding. They were the ones who decided that uh, World War II had. Uh, done sufficient, had proved the need for a thorough, thoroughgoing Enlightenment liberalism, the need to immediately put an end to all sorts of discrimination and and uh, persecution in society. That that was the, the the real liberal revolution of the 1960s, and all of us have grown up under the rule of those 1960s uh, political theories. Uh, I mean, all of us have been benefited from, you know, from the kinds of uh, f- freedom and equality that, that were being uh, advanced then. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I also think we've been harmed by it. And the way that we've been harmed by it is that that 1960s revolutionary liberalism uh, was very conscious of being anti-traditional, uh, of throwing out the, the old traditions. I mean, you can sort of understand... Why? Because if the you know people were saying, well, we persecute blacks in our state, you know, in Mississippi. Why? Because that's our tradition. So, it, with people like that talking about tradition, so you can understand why 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 people would say, well, you know, a lot of the what we inherit from the past is just evil. The problem is that here it is now. It's uh, sixty years later, and it turns out that uh, that liberalism can't actually survive without without those traditions to support. I, I don't mean the the racist traditions, but without a, without a strong national and religious traditions to support it. And so, the the question for those who want to save liberalism, I, I don't think it's it's doomed. But I think that the the way that it's been moving for the last sixty years has has been catastrophic, not just for conservatives. I think it's been obviously catastrophic uh, catastrophic for liberalism itself. How did we get to the place where? a society overwhelmingly dominated by liberalism, where all the major parties and institutions were were, were liberal beginning in the 1970s, let's say. How did we reach the point where liberalism is so, so weak that it can be knocked over in this way? And I think the answer is you have to look to the absence of traditions.
3: And now a message from our commercial supporters at Hydrant, whose refreshing drink mixes hydrate you quickly. One of the best parts of a Quillette job is getting sample packs from our advertisers. I've tried Hydrant, and I like it. My favorite flavor is grapefruit, by the way, though the new flavors, Iced Tea Lemonade and Fruit Punch, are also great. But a more important stamp of approval comes from our managing editor, Colin Wright, who, as Instagram followers will know, is a kind of fitness nut. He tells me that Hydrant is a great alternative to overly sweet hydration mixes. The flavors don't taste artificial, which isn't surprising since they're flavored with real fruit juice powder. Each Hydrant Rapid Hydration Mix has the four electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, Potassium, Magnesium, and Zinc. There's also a separate product called Hydrant Plus Caffeine that adds in 100 mg of caffeine from green tea. Hydrant was developed by an Oxford University scientist, and it's become a staple of pro athletes, celebrities, and, as you can see on the website, plenty of ordinary folks who've given it five-star reviews. Hydrant starts at just a dollar per packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. Plus, we've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash quillette or enter our promo code quillette at checkout that's d-r-i-n-k-h-y-d-r-a-n-t dot com slash quillette q-u-i-double-l-e-double-t-e and enter promo code quillette for 25% off your first order thanks to hydrant for their support and now back to our podcast
1: let's suppose that's right and that the way to defend liberal institutions, liberal democracy, is to um, revive the um, uh, religious and cultural hinterland within which liberal values and liberal institutions flourished. Um, But it's all very well to say that, but aren't a lot of the traditions you want to revive not just moribund, but exhausted and, in some cases, dead. And, and you could say, well, of course, if many more people believed in God, if many more people engaged in regular religious worship, um, if we could reverse that trend, that secularisation uh, in some way, that would be beneficial to liberalism. And you can see why even people who, who don't believe in God and don't think of themselves as religious might see that argument but they can't then bring themselves to believe in those things in order to save liberalism aren't there kind of historical and cultural reasons why we can't resurrect those traditions why they're now unrecoverable i don't think that they're unrecoverable but i think that your
2: pessimistic view may may be correct it may i mean look i i I'm, i've been trying to to avoid saying that liberalism is doomed and i i also want to avoid saying that uh you know that that conservatism is doomed and that the traditions are doomed i mean i i i, I think that um l- 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 let me just say, say something very very simple human beings are not very good at predicting the future the future of political events right? if we just think back over the uh, uh the last you know the 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 last thirty years, almost no one predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, there were you know there were, there there were a couple of individuals that you can name, but al- almost no one of the thousands of experts employed to study the Soviet Union predicted that 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 communism in in in, in Russia and Eastern Europe would collapse. Virtually no one pre- predicted nine nine eleven and the rise of Al Qaeda. N- almost nobody predicted the collapse of the housing market in the United States and the subsequent. Uh, uh, economic catastrophe worldwide and people did not see the foresee the rise of nationalism not brexit not donald trump and i dare say that that not that many foresaw the uh a sudden outburst of uh, marxist strength in 2020 um we're not good at seeing the future um in uh, you know as a as a religious person i the, the way that i would say that is that is that these things really just are not the, the big picture is not really in our hands but uh if i might translate for non-religious listeners uh, what i mean by that is that there are these uh macro trends large uh, l- large events that seem to come out of nowhere now, they don't they don't actually come out of nowhere when you when you go back historically and look at them you can sometimes understand exactly what happened but looking forward we don't really know what's going to happen so I want to make very practical suggestions that anyone who wants to be on what I consider to be the you know the strong anti-Marxist side of this what can they do uh, the 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 first thing doesn't require going to church or synagogue the f- very first thing that's required is for people to understand that liberalism has moved um powerfully towards revoking the legitimacy of conservatives throughout society. And I, I've already said I'm a conservative, so anyone wants to say you know, that my argument is self-serving, uh, I, fine. I, I, I've said I'm a conservative and I'm arguing from a conservative perspective and you, you can take it or leave it. My proposal is that liberals who don't see themselves as conservatives and don't see themselves as traditionalists, that they ought to be able to understand that a democratic society can only be stable when there is a, traditionally for the last couple of centuries, when there's been a strong liberal party and a strong conservative party, and each one grants legitimacy to the other. And that doesn't mean you have to like the conservatives if you're a liberal, and you don't have to like the liberals if you're conservative. I mean, you, you have contempt for them all you want. But the deal is... You grant legitimacy to conservatives. You allow them to speak. If they win an election, you allow them to govern, and you say, "I'm the loyal opposition," up until the point that I uh, th- that I win the next election. That was that was the kind of democracy that that I grew up in, and that's gone now. I mean, I, I I'm not saying it's it's doomed in the sense it's never coming back, but too many of my liberal friends, and I would say this is probably a majority of the in, in intellectuals and, and politicos that I know, too many of them have crossed the line into saying that, oh, well, Brexit is not legitimate or Donald Trump is not legitimate. Now, I, I, and I'm, I'm not saying this in order to cast some kind of, you know, blame on liberals. I, I mean, the opposite. I think that we we need to find a way to talk again. But if we don't have a strong enough liberal contingent that's willing to ally itself with conservative traditions then i really do think that we are that we don't have much hope that's what the marxists are counting on is that they've succeeded in dividing the pro democracy forces making us uh, hate one another to such an incredible degree that that we're not willing to defend democracy anymore that, that we're, we're not willing to defend free speech and free elections and, and the right of the majority party to, to pursue its policies without having a, an underground resistance trying to destroy the results of, uh, uh, of every vote and every election. So th- that's my first and central proposal in this essay. But you're right that if if we if if you want to dig deeper, then then uh, in the end I, I I will recommend that that people consider uh, taking steps that they don't currently consider to be uh, reasonable, like uh, uh, joining a church or synagogue. But you know we can
1: discuss that some other time. Finally, when you talk about the need um, for conservatives and liberals to make common cause and to forge. An alliance to see off this threat to liberal democracy. Have you actually taken any practical steps to try and make that happen? Are you in the process of organizing a conference with this as the theme, to which you'll invite both liberals and conservatives?
2: That sounds like the kind of thing I would do because I I love organizing conferences and and i I think I'm pretty good at it. But at the at at the moment, everybody's pretty pinned down, and the conference organizing business is is is. Uh, kind of under the weather because of the coronavirus. So we're going to have to find alternative methods for advancing this project up until we can all come out of our homes
1: again. Well, Yeran Hazoni, thank you very much for talking to Quillette and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Toby.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.